Philip Yancey, who's a pretty well-known Christian author, he, he's written in his book, Rumors of Another World. That's not quite as famous as many of his other books. Tells of the amazing implications of truly understanding the gospel. And he says it this way. When the world sees grace in action, it's silent. Because it's so profound when they see God's amazing grace, especially demonstrated through his children. Many of you know who Nelson Mandela is. There's been movies made about him. Uh, Nelson Mandela taught the world a lesson in grace when after emerging from prison for 27, been in prison 27 years, and being elected the president of South Africa, he asked his jailer to join him in the inaugura inauguration platform. How many think that's kind of unusual? You know, here's a guy that's been kind of my jailer for 27 years, but I want to teach a lesson to the nation. And he appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to head an official government panel with a daunting name called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. <clears throat> now, Mandela sought to diffuse the natural pattern <clears throat> of revenge that he had seen so many countries take when an oppressed group of people rose to power and then they began to abuse the people that had abused them. And he wanted to nullify that. He wanted that to come to an end. And so he created this context. And so for two and a half years, South Africans listened to reports, many times of atrocity, coming out of these hearings. And the rules were very simple. If an officer or a police officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed their crime, and fully acknowledged their guilt, they could not be tried and punished for the crime. And a lot of people didn't like that. They thought, okay, now you're abusing the system. Justice is not going to be served. You know, hardline people that had been abused, they felt, they felt like that wasn't fair. And yet, Mandela insisted what the country needed was not justice. What the country needed was healing. And so he stuck to his guns. And at one hearing, I want to tell you one story. A police officer by the name of Vanderbrock recounted an incident where he and other officers shot killed an 18-year-old boy, and then burned his body to destroy the evidence. And not to make things even, I mean, make things even worse, the wife, later on, eight years later, they came to the same house, arrested the father of the boy, and literally forced the wife to watch as they bound him, poured gasoline over his body, and incinerated him. And so he had to confess to this crime. The courtroom grew hush as the elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond to this man confessing this crime to her. And of course, she was a witness to the latter part. And so the judge said to her, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbrock? And the woman, she said, I just want him to go to the place where they burned my husband's body. Gather up the dust so that we can give him a decent burial. His face down, Vanderbrock nodded agreement. Yeah, I can do that. And then she added one more request. She said, now Mr. Vanderbrock took all the family that I have, but I still have a lot of love to give. So I want twice a month that he should come to the ghetto where I live and spend the day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know that he is not only forgiven by God, but that he is forgiven by me. 
And I would like to walk over and embrace him so he can know that my forgiveness is real. How many know that was quite a moment in the courtroom? People began to quietly sing, some people. Amazing grace. And as she made her way to the witness stand, Vanderbrock did not hear the hymn because he had become so overwhelmed by grace that he had fainted. Do you know revenge perpetuates evil? Justice punishes evil. But for evil to actually be overcome, it can only be overcome if it's absorbed by the injured party and refused to allow it to go any further. That ends it. That's how good overcomes evil. Thus, in the power of the gospel, we see this amazing message of God's goodness and grace overcoming the injustices and evils created by humanity's rebellion against God. In our text today, we're going to discover this picture. While the Jewish people had an expectation that their Messiah would come to them. Now you have to understand, this is an oppressed people. Rome has brought them under their thumb. They'd been oppressed for centuries by various conquerors. Their expectation and their picture was a Messiah who would rule as the king and and, and, and literally overthrow the oppressors and cause Israel to rise to the top and it would become the leading nation. But Jesus now is going to paint a picture of what he's about to do in such shocking terms. Now, you have to understand something. You and I know the story. But could you pretend for me for one minute that you grew up with a certain expectation all of your life. And all of a sudden, you think the person that's coming to fulfill your expectation does the very opposite of what you think. How many might be a little shocked? You might be a little stunned. You'd been told all of your life, but everybody you knew, every scholar, every person that ever talked about the Messiah painted a certain picture. It wasn't necessarily all the same picture, but it, it basically, at the end of the day, you know, it was the overthrow of Rome in their minds. Now, this New Testament scholar James Edwards says, not only does Jesus not fit the Messianic stereotype, but he, in this chapter, chapter 8, we're going to look at, he redefines his mission in a scandalous contrast to it. As a matter of fact, the meaning of his life and mission is not about victory and success, which is what they were anticipating, but about rejection, suffering, and death. How many go, that's kind of the opposite. That's a little shocking. When Jesus finally speaks to the issue of his identity and mission, he sums it up in a a term that, he, that he, he basically says it this way. The son of man must suffer many things. Or in other words, the Messiah, his view of the Messiah, Jesus' understanding of this role is that he must suffer many things and that this is the way he is going to overcome all evil and injustice in the world. Now in our text we find That clarity of vision is critical to seeing or understanding correctly. How many know that's true? If you don't understand something, you don't get it. If you don't see it clearly, you're not going to be able to understand what's transpiring. You're blind to this idea. And so James Edwards says a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. And that's why this message is so critical. 
If you and I do not understand what Jesus is about, we will not understand what we should be about. We have to have a clear vision of who Jesus Christ is in order for us to have a clear understanding what we should be about. And that's why this story today is going to maybe rock our little worlds. I hope it does because I think we need to get this. Now maybe it's clear in your mind. Maybe you've already got this clarity of vision and you're already clearly understanding what discipleship is all about. But today, for some of us, this may be a little enlightening. I think if we get this wrong, if our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's about isn't grasped correctly, then our own lives and what we're about and the ultimate course of our life will be distorted. That's exactly what will happen. And you know, I, I, I've been a pastor so long and I've watched people, you know, come to Christ and, and if they don't get a clear understanding of what Christianity is all about, they end up doing and going off in all kinds of false tangents and eventually it affects them in a negative way. So I want to take a look here at three expressions that are going to help us see clearly who Jesus is and what it means for our lives. And the first one, to give us real clarity of vision regarding what true discipleship is, is illustrated in a miracle. It's found in Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. It's the healing of a blind man and it's a very unusual story. As a matter of fact, Generally speaking, when Jesus heals people, it happens instantaneously. As a matter of fact, in the seven incidences in the Gospels where Jesus heals a blind person, all but this one, Jesus heals them instantaneously. But this is an unusual story. And I believe there's a reason where it's situated. As a matter of fact, if you come up to this point, I could have easily preached this two weeks ago, took right, us right into the story to explain how the disciples were not grasping in true significance who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, Mark never tells us who Jesus is. He keeps demonstrating it, you know. First of all, there's a storm at, you know, on the lake and the disciples are freaked out. They're going to drown and they wake Jesus up and he stands up and he says to the, the storm, be still. And immediately they go, what manner of person is this? In other words, who is this guy? I mean, he tells the, the weather to change. And I mean, over and over again, Jesus is doing things that usually no mortal person is doing. And a lot of what he's doing, like walking on the waves, and it's a, it's a playback, and I shared this a number of weeks ago, that when you're walking on the water, you know, that's something that's a prerogative that only God does. And so Jesus was doing things that only God does. And so he was communicating to them that he is not who they thought he was. He's a lot more than what they think he is. And so here we have this amazing miracle as it transpires. Look at verse 22. They came to the town called Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. You know, I'm always thankful for the people and we ought to be thankful for the people that bring us to Christ. Amen? We ought to be thankful for the people that were concerned about our souls, the people that prayed for us, the people that dragged us to church, you know? The people that wanted us to meet Jesus because when you really meet Jesus, it will change your life forever. And so they brought this man to Jesus and he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. How many, you know, immediately some questions come to my mind. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus lead this man outside the village? Isn't that a great question? Did you ever read this and think about why would he do that? 
Why would he move him from Bethsaida? And then the second question that comes to my mind, why in the world would Jesus spit on him? Well, you know, think about it. It said he spit on him, you know? And when you understand the Old Testament, you realize that that's not a kosher behavior. That's, you know, for most of us, that's not very hygienic. It's not, you know, it's a little disgusting, Pastor. You know, what in the world is Jesus doing? And when you study Leviticus, it says things like bodily emissions were considered, you know, it created an unclean state. And so they had to, you know, make sure that they would clean up and before they were considered clean again. And so this whole issue of what's clean and unclean, what's holy and uh, unholy and what's pure and impure. Basically, Jesus was doing something that was considered by Jewish sensibilities as an unclean and impure and unholy act. Uh, don't you think that's, how many think it's a little fascinating? So Jesus is doing the very opposite of what you think he should be doing. And can you see that kind of created some problems in people's spaces? And yet, I want to point out to you that whenever that which is defiled touches Jesus, it becomes pure. Jesus comes to a leopard. The leopard says, Jesus, you know, I want you to heal me. Will you heal me? And Jesus says, I will. Jesus could have easily spoken the word because it was an unclean act to touch a person with a skin disease, especially like leprosy. And Jesus could have just said the word, be healed. And that man would have been healed. But what does Jesus do? He walks over and touches him, thereby, quote unquote, defiling himself. And yet we know Jesus wasn't defiled. As a matter of fact, when uncleanness touches Christ, it becomes clean. And that's the whole point of what Jesus is trying to get across. That when you and I come to him in our unclean, impure, unholy condition and we're touched by Jesus, we are changed. And I love that. So that kind of answers that one question, why did Jesus spit on him, you know? But let me move back to why did Jesus pull him out of Bethsaida? And I think the answer, and I'm just going to make a little, you know, you can dispute this point, but this is what I think, okay? I think it's because Bethsaida was a community where Jesus had performed a lot of miracles and there was a lot of resistance to his ministry. Matthew tells us this. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. In other words, he was manifesting who he was, but the people were resisting who he was, who Jesus is, and they weren't changing their minds about him. And in verse, the next verse, Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, what Jesus is saying is Tyre and Sidon are northern cities in the Phoenician uh, conglomerate or nation, what would be Lebanon today, and these were Gentiles. And Jesus said, if I would have done the miracles in a Gentile city like I've done in you, they would have repented before Almighty God. And he has a good argument for that because we know what happened when Jonah went to Nineveh, that ungodly city, you know, and he preached. They repented. And Jesus said, you guys have resisted. And so there's a context here or maybe a, a little background here we need to understand. How many know that when Jesus actually came to his own hometown, a place called Nazareth, 
and he was ministering there. Look what it says in Mark's gospel earlier. It says, only in his own hometown among his relatives and in his own house as a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So what I think has happening is Jesus is going, I'm taking you out of this environment of resistance to me. And he leads him by the hand and takes him out of town. And there continues to minister to him. And when after Jesus had spit on him, he said to him, what do you see? It's a great question. Well, verse 24, he says, he looked up and he said, I see people and they look like trees walking around. Warren Worsby says it this way. That tells us he probably wasn't born blind. He probably had some sort of infection come upon his eyesight because obviously he knew what a tree was. And he saw movement. And so he identified the people's movement like, you know, I can't see clearly. It's a way of saying I'm not seeing totally right. And then the Bible says once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, we can talk about why, you know, it took more than one expression of Jesus in this man's life. We could argue, you know, God doesn't always have to heal instantaneously. God can heal us gradually. Sometimes the problem may be ourselves. Maybe it's a different issue. But I'm really convinced that this story has a metaphorical value. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I think when we look at where it's placed in Mark's gospel, we see prior to the story, the disciples not comprehending who Jesus is. He had just fed the 4,000 and they couldn't quite get it. Jesus had this whole discussion about, you know, beware of the the leaven of the Pharisees, you know, and they go, is that because we didn't bring any bread? Jesus kind of, you know, I could just see Jesus rolling his eyes and going, it's not about bread, guys. I'm talking about their teaching. You know, he's a little frustrated with their dullness. Okay, And then we get the next story where immediately afterwards as we're moving down here, we notice that he says to this man, he sent him home saying, don't go into the village. He sent him home. So this man was not from Bethsaida, so he said, don't even bother going into into that town because they're not going to respond. They don't have a right attitude. So now, here's the second expression in helping us gain a clarity of vision. I'm going to just skip over this because we've covered this ground. Isn't that nice? Is it's uh, Ill- illuminated in a confession of faith. We pick up the story in verse 27. And in verse 27 here of chapter 8, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? Now, Jesus is now in the very northernmost part of Galilee. As a matter of fact, if you were to travel there today, you know, in the Old Testament it talked about Israel being from Dan to Beersheba. All right, Dan to Beersheba. Dan is only a few miles away from Caesarea Philippi. If you just, it doesn't take any time to get there. That's right on the northernmost border. It's right exactly where the Jordan River commences. There's the headwaters of the Jordan are there. It's a place where, you know, the, the Gentiles actually dominated Caesarea Philippi. They worshiped this Greek god called Pan, who, you know, had, you know, authority. And it's interesting. It's at near this place, in the villages near this Gentile center, that Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? 
Now, earlier in the chapter, Herod said about Jesus, this has got to be John the Baptist. You know, didn't I kill this guy? But here this guy comes back to life. He's doing all these miracles. And so Herod's estimation of who Jesus is is, well, he's a, res- he's a reincarnated John the Baptist. That's what the disciples answer. And then they also go on to say here, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Now, you have to understand, the Jewish people at this moment had an amazing fascination with one of the prophets, okay? And the one prophet they had amazing a fascination with was Elijah. And the reason being was that Elijah had never experienced death. How many know that? When you read the story, a heavenly chariot came down, swooped him up, and they couldn't find his body because he had never experienced death. And then later on, as you finish the Old Testament canon, which is the, all of the books of the Old Testament, the last one is the prophet what? Malachi. And if you read the last few chapters of Malachi, it's just a short little book, four chapters. At the very end, it talks about that great and terrible day of judgment when God comes back and he says, I'm going to send my prophet Elijah to come back and prepare the way. And so every Jewish person was living in anticipation of Elijah's return to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Are you following all of this? So some of them thought, surely this has got to be Elijah, because look at the miracles. I mean, you know, Jesus actually raised someone from the dead in a village right next to where Elijah did it. There were a lot of neat things going on, so people were clicking in and going, this has got to be Elijah. And then Jesus, you know, had people question him about that. And he said to his disciples, well, how come it says when the Messiah comes, you know, that Elijah has to first come? And then Jesus said, well, don't you guys realize that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. So he, he's focusing, because you know what we do? We focus in on a certain expectation, a certain person. He's saying, no, John the Baptist's ministry was the ministry of like Elijah's. He was preparing the people of God for the visitation of God himself. And isn't that what Elijah did on Mount Carmel? He would prepared the people for, for God's visitation. And so Jesus is basically telling his disciples that he's the Messiah. He didn't say it, but he's basically telling them that. And then eventually he asks the bigger question. Who do you say that I am? You know, a lot of people, when you ask that question, they're gonna come up with all kinds of answers, just like these guys did. There are people today, if you ask them, who is Jesus Christ, they'll say, well, he's a, he's a prophet. As a matter of fact, if you talk to people from a Muslim background, you say, who is Jesus? They'll say he's one of the prophets. You know, that's what they believe. How many knew that? They actually believe Jesus is a prophet. But, you know, you'll say, well, if he's a prophet, you know, a prophet has to speak the truth. Jesus says he's more than a prophet. Isn't there a problem there? Well, they'll tell you, oh, no, but the Bible's corrupted, you know. So they, you know, they, 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 they take what they want to take. But, you know, there are people that believe Jesus is a prophet. Then there's a bunch of people today, if you say, well, who's Jesus? They'll tell you, well, he's, you know, he's like, you know, Elijah. I mean, wouldn't that be flattering if somebody said, man, you, you, you're like Elijah. We'd think, wow, that miracle working, you know, fire from heaven kind of personality. That would be flattering. But for Jesus, that's not flattery. 
because he's greater than Elijah. Then there are people that would say, you know, Jesus is a great teacher. There's never been greater morality and greater ethics ever been taught by any person that's ever come onto this planet. He has got the greatest, most sublime teaching. He's the greatest teacher. But how many know that's not saying enough about who Jesus really is? And when Jesus asks the question, Peter now speaks up on behalf of all of the disciples. They all feel the same way. And he answers this question. He says, no, he said, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus says this. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew tells us this in the same incident. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. This was a revelation. Jesus had never told them he was the Messiah. Jesus had only demonstrated to them that he was the Messiah. And they finally were starting to get it. But like the story of the man who sees with blurry vision, Jesus now begins to tell them what the Messiah is about to do. And what does he say in the very next verse? He says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him in verse 30. Now why would Jesus tell these guys not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah? And here's my thought on that. And some other scholars, I agree with these guys. They said, these guys had a wrong understanding of what the Messiah was all about. So if they would have said, the Messiah's here, you would have had a civil war start immediately. Because in their minds, the Romans got to go, here's the new leader, let's fight to the death. Okay, everybody following this? And by the way, this happened over and over again in their history. So I'm not just pulling this out of a hat. Remember when Paul was arrested and uh, he said, well, I thought you were that, like that one, you know, the one guy that was you know, causing a ruckus in the wilderness. There were always people claiming to be messiahs winding up the Jewish people. You know? and so the Romans were always nervous about somebody called the messiah. And Jesus says, don't tell them this because it'll just get everybody going, like right now. And then Jesus says something very fascinating. Verse 31, now he begins to explain to them what the Messiah is about to do. It says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now how many know that was not in any of their theological books? That was causing a lot of angst inside of Peter, hearing this comment. As a matter of fact, he got so upset with this because how many know that if you have uh, a wrong understanding of who the Messiah is, you're gonna have a different understanding of what discipleship is. What were these guys thinking? The Messiah is gonna come and what? Kick out the Romans and set up a kingdom and guess what? Hey, we're gonna rule and reign with Christ. Doesn't that sound great? Jesus goes, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going down, guys. The Son of Man is going to come and die. He must suffer and die and be killed and rise again from the dead. You see, in their mind, the Messiah was going to come and deal with all injustice. He was going to put down all those oppressors. And Jesus goes, yeah, I'm going to do it. But I'm going to do it the very opposite way than you think. I'm going to die. And these guys are like, Peter was so upset with this. It says here in the scriptures... He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke there is the same word that when you, you know, Jesus rebuked the devil. 
Jesus rebuked the demons. It's that same language. This is a very strong term. Peter was really strong with Jesus. He was telling him in no uncertain terms that that was never going to happen. And what does Jesus do? He turns around. It says here, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he didn't just look at Peter. He looked at all of the disciples because he knew that Peter was only expressing what was in all their minds. And says, and he rebuked Peter and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he said to the crowd, to him, along with his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is now redefining what this is all about. Now, don't you think it's interesting? Jesus uses a very fascinating term. I don't think we clue in on this. Look, go back here to verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Son of Man, when I say that term, what comes into your mind? You're saying, well, it just means that he's a human being. He's a part of the human race. Wrong answer. This has such deep theological significance. You have to know the Old Testament. So you go all the way back to the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, what you're going to find out is that Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 7. As a matter of fact, the Son of Man was the normal title that Jesus used for himself while he was in his earthly ministry. But let me read you Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I want you to think now, you're a Jewish person. You believe in one God. There is only one God. The Lord our God is one. He's one God. There's all these other religions and they're all worshiping all these gods, but we're the only ones that have one God. Everybody following this? Now let's listen to what he says here. In the vision that night I looked and there before me, Daniel's having a vision, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now he's talking here, just to give it its context, he's talking about all of these different empires and nations. He's talking about human history. He's talking about how this empire is going to rise and then it's going to fall and this empire is going to rise and this empire is going to fall and this empire is going to rise. And he said, but there's going to come a day when God's kingdom is going to come. And all the empire of men will never be able to stand against it. Now listen to what he says. It's coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days. By the way, it's a name for God. The God who's from everlasting, the God who is eternal, he is called the Ancient of Days. He always was, he always will be, he always is. It's a title for God, the Ancient of Days. It says here, he approached the Ancient of Days. Who approached him? Well, the grammatical context suggests the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days. Doesn't it kind of say that? Now listen to what it says. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Who? The Son of Man. By the way, if we worship anyone but God, aren't we committing idolatry? Of course. How many are already getting a sense something's going on with this passage? This is a passage people ignored. They didn't talk about. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't look at this text from a, what we would call a Christological lens. They did not understand the revelation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They knew there was Yahweh, God. But Jesus is now saying, 
that there is an element, a mystery about God that you need to understand. It's very difficult. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, you know, he goes on to say this mystery. I'll come back to that text in a minute. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. Who appeared in a body? God did. When did he appear in a body? He appeared in a body when, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's when God appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up into glory. Great is the mystery of godliness. It's a mystery. Don't ask me to explain this. I had someone try to discuss this with me the other day. How do you understand it? It's a mystery. Let me go back to the verse right after 713. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is a what kind of dominion? It's an everlasting dominion. And that, his, that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Because he's an everlasting king. Are we getting the picture? And this is how Jesus describes himself. The son of man. He's revealing who he is to us in this text. And then he says something so shocking that, you know, Peter can't grasp this. The son of man must suffer. Wow. He must suffer. He, he has to suffer. It's the only way that evil can be addressed. But let me just close, with, uh, finish my second point by saying this. What is the Spirit of God saying here when Paul says the mystery of godliness? What is he basically saying? That Christ is God. That Jesus Christ is God. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. I could go on and talk scripture after scripture. You go into Colossians where it talks about who Jesus is. He is the one that created all things and all things were created by him and for him. We could go to Philippians chapter 2 and say he did not think it was robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. And eventually he dies this death and then it says and goes on to say and God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are we getting the picture? So God must suffer in the person of Jesus Christ. But let me move on to the third expression. First is illustrated in the merit. The second is illuminated in the confession of faith. The final one is the instruction correcting false understandings. When we think, what we think shapes the decisions we make. How many know that's the truth? What you believe about a situation is affecting how you're making the decision about that situation. And you know, a lot of times we don't have clarity. A lot of times we're making snap decisions. A lot of times we're making imperfect decisions. A lot of times we're making decisions we don't have all the information. Isn't that true? We're making decisions. And they're affecting our lives and they're affecting the lives of other people. You know, it's amazing that this story of, of this man that, you know, Jesus touched once and he couldn't see clearly, but then eventually he was touched again, he could see clearly. It's almost a picture of Jesus touching these men and Peter says, you're the Messiah. But Jesus says, yeah, but you're not seeing clearly. You only see like, you know, men like trees are walking. 
You don't get the picture, Peter. Let me fill you in. Let me touch you one more time so you can clearly grasp this of what's going to happen. Jesus will cut a totally different profile from the popular stereotype. Jesus will, of course, identify with some of the ideas associated with my Messiah, such as liberation and peace, but he will eschew or, or shun others, especially those associated with military power and rule. And declaring Jesus as the Christ, Peter has supplied the proper title, but he has the wrong understanding. His vision, to use the imagery in 822 to 26 is improved, but it's still blurry. Jesus will don the servant's towel rather than the warrior's sword. He will practice sacrifice above vengeance. He will, not, he will not inflict suffering, but will suffer himself as a ransom for many. This Peter does not know and consequently swears him to silence, lest a false report arouse revolutionary fervor. Jesus must now begin to teach the true meaning of Peter's confession. For this Peter and the disciples they're unprepared. You know why they're unprepared? Because if you have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, you'll have a wrong understanding of what it means to follow him. And I'm going to argue today that there are a lot of people who think they're following Jesus, but they have a wrong understanding of him, and therefore they're following him in the wrong way. They have a false understanding of who Jesus is, and they have a false gospel. You know, and it can even happen to people who are Christians who think that, you know, Jesus came to make my life better. Jesus came to make me happy. Well, those are all byproducts, but that's not the ultimate goal. Jesus came to set us free from our sins. Jesus came to make us more like himself. Jesus came that we would follow in his footsteps, that, that we would understand that, you know what, just like he suffered, we must prepare and arm our minds to be prepared to suffer because we're his followers. And it's not suffering because, you know, like all humanity, we suffer because of the nature of sin in our general world that we have a cross to bear, like we say, you know, we've got an, you know, an unhappy spouse or a miserable child or all the rest of it. That's not what we're talking about here. The cross that Jesus is going to call us to bear is a cross that we're bearing because we're following Jesus. And if we decided not to follow Jesus, we wouldn't be bearing that cross. And what do you mean by that, Pastor? It means simply this, the fact that I'm identifying with Jesus, people are uh, criticizing me and condemning me and making fun of me. That's the cross that Jesus is talking about. You know, we create an offense because we're followers of Christ. I like what Timothy Keller says, the notion that the Messiah would suffer made no sense at all because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world. How could he defeat evil by suffering and dying? That seems ridiculous, impossible. By using the word must, Jesus is also indicating that he is planning to die and that voluntarily. You know, when an injustice is done, someone has to pay the price. You know, Keller uses the example. You walk into somebody's home, they have a beautiful lamp, you accidentally knock it over, it crashes to the floor, it costs $100. Somebody has to pay the price. What do you mean somebody has to pay the price? Well, you either ask the person who broke it or they volunteer to pay for it or the household owner has to either pay for it to replace that light or they're sitting in darkness. Somebody has to pay the price. And every time there's a sense of injustice, somebody has to suffer. That's all he's trying to bring out. You know, think of it this way. 
When someone robs you of an opportunity, robs you of happiness, robs you of a reputation, takes away something that you can never get back, that creates a sense of debt. Justice has been violated. That person owes you. Once you sense that debt, there are only two things you can do. You can either try to make that person pay you back or you can try to destroy their opportunities, ruin their reputation. You can hope that they suffer or you can actually see to it that they suffer. But there's a big problem with that. What's the problem with that, Pastor? The problem is that you're becoming just like them. You become harder, colder, you become the perpetuator, a perpetrator, and evil wins. Well, then what else can we do? You can forgive. But there's nothing easy about forgiveness. The moment you decide to forgive, you have to suffer loss. So the debt of wrong doesn't vanish. Either they pay or you pay. But here's the irony. Only if you pay the price of forgiveness can you absorb the debt. And is there any opportunity to right the wrong? If we know that forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver and that the only hope of rectifying and righting the wrong comes by paying the cost of suffering, then it should not surprise us when God says the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race is to suffer. Either you will pay the penalty of sin or I will. And aren't you glad today that God stepped forward and said, I'll pay your sin. I'll forgive your sin. And so you, can you understand why when people go, you know, Christianity, you guys are so exclusive and all these other religions leads, leads, to, leads to the same place. Let me just point out to you. All the other religions teach you to live a good life, be a good person. Do you think you could ever live a good enough life and be a good enough person? And here's the kicker. If God didn't think so, I think God knows more than you and I. You and I could never repay the debt. So God says, I'll take care of it. It's too great. And the fact that he chose to take care of it would suggest to me that you and I need to realize what a debt it really was. And when you and I reject what he's done on our behalf, we're saying we can handle our own sin issue through religion or whatever behavioral method we want to use. A lot of it today is we're just in denial. We don't have a problem. And yet, meanwhile, we're an emotional wreck a lot of the times. We've got all these issues in our soul. We don't understand a lot of it is driven by guilt. James Edward then brings out this powerful understanding. The prediction of Jesus' passion conceals a great irony. For the suffering and death of the Son of Man will not come as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people. The suffering of the Son of Man comes rather at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. It is not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God. It is humanity at its best. And that's a shocking statement. And then Tim, Timothy Keller says it this way, the cross reveals the systems of the world to be corrupt, serving power and oppression instead of justice and truth. So why was Peter so distraught with this revelation? Because a wrong view of who Jesus is leads to a wrong view of what it means to follow. And the only way to be saved is that we have to follow Jesus. We have to put our trust in him. And I'm going to close with these verses. 
If any man would come, or anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And isn't that the hardest thing in the world? Isn't that where all the problems are? Is with self? We must deny ourselves, take up the cross, his cross, and follow me, he said. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a man or a woman give in exchange for their soul? And if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. How many see this is a very powerful text? This is actually the core of the book. This is actually the pivotal moment. This is when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And once you understand I'm the Messiah, you need to understand who the Messiah is and what he's about to do. And when you understand that, you will understand what it means to truly follow me. And if you don't get that right, you're going to live wrong. You're not going to live as a forgiver. You're not going to arm your mind and be prepared to suffer. I've read the Bible a lot. Believe me, I've read it a lot. And I've come to some pretty deep conclusions. The Christian life is a life you have to be prepared to suffer. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.1, arm your mind and be prepared to suffer. Paul says in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, he said, you know, in this world you'll have many tribulations and through much hardship will you enter the kingdom of God. This is a narrow road, folks. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a lot of people saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm doing my own thing. Jesus said, you can't do your own thing. He says it right here. It says, if anyone would come after me, he must what? He must what? He must what? Deny, deny, deny. What? Self. If you want to find yourself, you've got to lose it for me and the gospel's sake. And you know, most of us were so fearful. That was a, Hannah Hernard wrote a book years ago. You know, Hind's Feet on High Places. How many have ever read that? I'd recommend it. It's an allegory. It's a story of a little pilgrim, much afraid. And you know what? It's all about trusting God. And you know, you can say, oh, I really trust God. Do we really trust God? God says, you know when I give you a child, it belongs to me. It never did belong to you. That child belongs to me. I'm just, you're just stewarding. As a matter of fact, everything you have belongs to me. I always get a bang out of people. Pastor, should I be tithing on my income before taxes or after taxes? Do you know how ludicrous that statement is to me in light of this text? Can I just tell you, everything you have belongs to him. Your spouse belongs to him. Your children belong to him. I would even argue your body belongs to him. Therefore, glorify God in your body. How's that? So why are we so afraid? Well, pastor, I'm afraid to die. Listen, once you've settled the issue, you're gonna die anyways. Once you've settled the issue that death is no longer an enemy, that you're gonna go into God's presence, there's nothing on this planet people can do to you that will make any difference. Because if you really believe God loves you with this kind of a love, an everlasting love, and that he knows your name and he knows every hair on your head, why in the world are we afraid to trust him? Why are we afraid 
to know that he's going to take care of us. And listen, we have a purpose here. And our purpose here isn't about our agenda. And that's why a lot of people are frustrated in the church because they're trying to do their thing and God goes, I'm not supporting it. And he just lets you struggle away. Why don't we kneel down today and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. I want to live out your will. Let's stand today. When asked the question, was asked by Jesus, I'm asking in Christ's behalf, who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus is asking you today. He asked it to his early disciples. He's asking to you today, who do you say that I am? How many here with every head bowed, you say, you know what? I believe today, pastor, he's more than just a man. He's God, and he died for me. And I've never given my life to him, but today I'm surrendering. I'm gonna bow my knee to him. I'm gonna call out to him. I'm gonna surrender to him. And that's you today. God's speaking to your spirit today. Just raise your hand. Say, you know what? I wanna receive Christ. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. That's you. In the first service, people responded. We had people respond to this. Okay? No response today? It's fine. Now I'm gonna ask a different question. How many here say, you know what, Pastor? I've lived in fear. I have not trusted. I've had a little different idea about Christianity. Because you know what? There's a big distortion going on in North America. It's all about getting ahead. Isn't that interesting? Jesus gets behind. Instead of going up, he goes down. He does everything the opposite. He does everything you wouldn't think he would do. And why does he do that? Because he knows he has to suffer for the sake of others. He understands it. He knows how to overcome evil. He knows how to overcome injustice. But you know what we get today? A bunch of Christians going, I got rights, you know. Really? Jesus laid aside his rights. Jesus picked up a towel and the job nobody else wanted, he got up and washed a bunch of stinky feet because nobody else wanted to do it because he was a servant. How many are getting a picture? We've got to get a right understanding of who Jesus is if we're going to follow correctly. And when Jesus asks us to do something that's difficult, we're saying, Lord, here am I, send me. You know what? We need to be more heroic in some ways. And sometimes the hero heroism is like doing stuff just for the people around us. You know, helping others. Denying ourselves. How can I practice self-denial? Not always getting my way. Being concerned about the interests of others and not just my own interests. I could go on and talk for a long time about this. As a matter of fact, I'm really convinced if we practice this, we'd have better marriages. I'm convinced if we practice this, we'd have better relationships. I'm convinced if we really understood this, we would have a greater impact in our culture today. But we're so caught up with ourselves. It's all about me. You know, you and I are gonna pass through this life so fast, it's gonna make your head spin. And at the end of the day, when you stand in front of Almighty God, you're gonna look into His eyes. You know what, at that point, all the things that you were worried about when you walked into the church today, they're not gonna matter, they're not gonna amount to a hill of beans. Isn't that true? All the stuff you're sweating right now isn't gonna make a difference. The only thing that really matters then is, did I do what God wanted me to do? That's what will matter then. Let's settle it today. 
with every head bowed right now and every eye closed, you're just saying, you know what? I got room for growth, Pastor. I got to, there's got to be some changes in me. And I'm opening up my soul and saying, God, it's not about me. I want your will to be done in and through me. You know, there's challenges in this life. Some of you are suffering. I understand that. God understands it. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's the champion of the oppressed. He knows when you are suffering for the sake of others. He knows at that moment you're becoming like him. He's allowing it to happen. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. You're becoming like Jesus. We think becoming like Jesus is getting all that you ever asked for, desired and wished. That's not becoming like Jesus. That's becoming selfish. We gotta let go of some stuff, folks. We gotta let go of our pride. We gotta let go of the hurts. We gotta let go of the injustices that have been done to us. We gotta allow forgiveness to rule and reign inside of us. We gotta be more like Jesus. And you know, I can't do this, and you can't do this, apart from Jesus ruling in you. And that's why today, as we bow our heads, I'm gonna pray for us, that Jesus will help us to be more like him. How many say, would you pray with me, Pastor? I wanna be more like Jesus. I wanna grow. And if it means I have to suffer a little bit, okay, fine. Give me the grace to bear it, Lord. Give me the understanding. Help me to see clearly what the gospel is all about. You know, if, if my suffering means that, you know, one other person comes into the kingdom, if my suffering means a thousand come into the kingdom, if my suffering means a million come into the kingdom, is it worth it? Lord, I just bow before you. We just acknowledge our great need for you. We are poor in spirit, Lord. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, of our self-centeredness. We ask you, oh God, to help us to understand what you really did for us, how amazing that love was. You said, I must suffer. And Lord, if we're gonna walk with you, we will suffer. The Bible says we'll suffer persecution. We will suffer trouble. We will have tribulation. Lord, all of those things are there, but we don't wanna think about those things. And yet you're calling us to embrace the cross, to take up your cross, to deny ourselves, to advance your cause, your kingdom, to lay aside our rights so that your kingdom would come, Lord. And so that one day we would not be ashamed and we, you're coming and we're standing in your presence. We will not stand ashamed. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.